Well, do take your Bible and turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation is the last book in the Bible, so start at the end and work your way in to chapter 13. Let's hear the Word of God. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, Everyone whose name has not been written before in the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This is the word of God. In his uh, introduction, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, records a conversation in book one of his famous work in a chapter called The Shadow of the Past. And the conversation relates to Frodo having the one ring of power. Frodo says to Galdalf, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And already, Frodo, our time is beginning to look black. When we come to this chapter... Things are looking very black in the world scene, as it's described here. Uh, There was a time when I was uh, a teenager and just in my first church. I wasn't a teenager in my first church, but I was emerging out of teenage years in my first church. I was a dispensationalist. That's quite a confession to make. Uh, and to ask forgiveness for, but being a dispensationalist, I'd been influenced by 
people like Hal Lindsay's book called The Late Great Planet Earth. If it's in the church library, I will be seeing the people there to talk about it afterwards. (laughs) I guess there's a generation of people who read that book. And one of the things that marked dispensationalism was that in its its approach to some Bible passages such as this one, they took a literalistic view of the passage. And the key language of the time was you had to read Revelation with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Well, of course, we don't have newspapers now, so it would be your phone probably and your social media on the other. Well, we're not going to do that this morning. We're not going to do that, and we're not going to be flippant about what this chapter is about. Uh, Let me remind you where it's placed. It's placed in a group. Chapters 12 and 13 belong together. In chapter 12, we are introduced to the wife of Jehovah, the bride of Christ, the woman from whom the Messiah is born and from whom all the Messiah's children are born. In other words, she is a metaphor for the church. And if she reminds you of Mary, the mother of our Lord, Mary herself, though a member of the church, is also a metaphor for the church. We're introduced then to the church. We're introduced to a dragon The dragon is identified as that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Satan attempts to devour the child, the man-child who is going to be born of the woman, the Messiah. He attempts to devour the child at its birth. The child is identified as the Christ who will rule the nations with a rod of iron from Psalm number 2. But Satan cannot crush the Christ. Instead, Christ himself initiates a wound, a mortal wound on Satan. Christ, we read in chapter 12, is caught up to God and to his throne. And Satan is cast out of heaven and cast down into the earth, taking with him, of course, the fallen angels who follow him in his disobedience. And having been cast out of heaven, Satan now turns his attention away from trying to destroy the Christ who has now come and lived and died and risen again and ascended to heaven. He turns his focus away from the woman, the Jewish church, to the church of the Lamb, those who follow him. So we would say the Christian church, the church as it is today, new Israel, renewed Israel, continuing Israel today, the church of Jesus Christ. He turns his attention, we're told in chapter 13, on those who keep the commandments of God and who bear witness to Jesus. And that's where we arrive at when we come to chapter 13. We've just been told at the very end of chapter 12, the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, that's us, and he stood on the sand of the sea. So we come to chapter 13. 
And here we are introduced in chapter 13 into an unholy trinity of evil. The dragon, the devil, the sea beast, we'll identify him in this sermon, and the earth beast. And what we will discover is that Satan continues to be a powerful presence in this age. His tactics, of course, have changed. You remember when Jesus came, the Son of God, and came in human flesh? The devil kind of tried to mimic Jesus' incarnation by possessing men and women with his evil spirits. They used the body and the vocal cords of these people they infested as a way of attacking Jesus and undermining Jesus' authority and so on. But with the resurrection of Jesus, Satan's tactics have changed. He is still the prince of demons. And having taken down a third of the angelic host with him into his disobedience, we find that Satan's attempts to destroy the church continually morph throughout this age as it faces new challenges and in order to create greater damage on the church and on the world. Here in chapter 13, we are introduced to the agents, the instruments of Satan in his attack upon Christ and Christ's church. (coughs) You notice that he's standing on the banks of the sea. That's a metaphor in the Bible A metaphor for the restless, seething mass of unregenerate, that is, people who are not born again, humanity. The wicked are like the troubled sea tossed to and fro, writes Isaiah. And the dragon stands ready to summon forces who will be his instruments and servants and agents to execute his purposes on the earth. The many waters are an existential threat to Israel in the Old Testament, and it's out of that existential threat to the people of God that Satan summons his henchmen, and they proceed forth from that reservoir of evil. We're looking at the first of these today. This first beast appears almost as a mirror image of Satan himself. Knowing and loving himself supremely, Satan, the dragon, wants to mimic God in creating something in his own image, as God created humanity in his image. Both the dragon and the beast have seven heads and ten horns. Both the dragon and the beast wear horns. The dragon on his heads and the beast on its horns. And this physical resemblance points to their spiritual equivalence. The beast acts on behalf of and as the dragon in the role that he will have in the world. But having said that, The beast is only the instrument. He is the plaything. He is the agent that Satan uses. In verse 2, his power, his throne, his great authority comes from the dragon. 
Later on in verse 4, they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Greg Beale it takes us back to the book of Job to give us some New Testament, Old Testament background to these two satanic beasts who oppose God from Job chapters 40 and 41. There in the very, very early history of the world, we have an allusion to a primordial defeat of the dragon by God, and we're pointed forward to a yet future battle between the dragon and God as these beasts that are introduced nurse this attitude of defiance against God which they've derived from the dragon and wait their opportunity to unleash their fury against God and against God's people. The Jews believed that at the beginning of history, that the beginning of history recorded in Job has has to be recapitulated at the end of history. The tradition holds that on the fifth day of creation, God created Leviathan to be in the sea and Behemoth to dwell on the land. These two beasts were symbolic of the powers of the evil one and were to be destroyed at the final judgment. That's the general background to our chapter. But there's a specific background to the chapter. Do follow me on this. I know it's hard to hear all of this, but the way in which we understand the Bible is to compare the Bible with the Bible. The the Holy Spirit, who is the author of Scripture, has given us the key to unlock Scripture. And so, the specific background to this chapter is in Daniel chapter 7. And it's from Daniel chapter 7 we begin to understand the identity of this beast, There in chapter 7 of Daniel, Daniel sees four great beasts that come out of the sea. You see there's a resemblance to Revelation 13. The first is like a lion that had eagle's wings. It was lifted up from the ground, made to stand in two feet like a human man, and was given the mind of a human being. The second beast was like a bear, and it was given the authority to devour much flesh, that is, to destroy human life. And it had four heads and was given dominion. The third was like a leopard. So one like a lion, one like a bear, one like a leopard, and the fourth beast where we read was terrible and dreadful and exceedingly strong and it had great iron teeth and it devoured and broken pieces and it stamped the residue with its feet. It had ten horns and behold there came up among the horns a little horn and this was full of eyes, the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke great things. Now these four beasts in Daniel's prophecy are identified as representing four great world empires. The Babylonian, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, that's the one that looks like a leopard. Leopard was one of the fastest animals that there was, and 
and uh, Alexander the Great, when he began his, uh, his act of taking over of the empire of the world at that stage, was so fast and speedy they likened him to a leopard. And then the, the fourth was the Roman Empire itself. So these were the empires. And the beast that John sees combines all of those four empires. Having ten horns, the beast was like a leopard. Its feet was like those of a bear. Its mouth like the mouth of a lion. And so what, what John is telling us, or what the Holy Spirit is telling us here is that this beast that John sees in his vision is a global empire. This monster is most like the fourth beast that speaks arrogant boasts and blasphemies and wages war against the saints. This beast in chapter 13 of, of Revelation represents a global political entity with a leader who will dominate the world in the last of the last days. This figure will possess characters and powers of previous world leaders. The number seven is used of him to denote, as the number seven always denotes, fullness or completeness or perfection. This is the fullness and completion and perfection of evil. Here is consummate evil. He incarnates in himself all the terrors of which politicized humanity is capable. That's why he displays the attribute of all of Daniel's monsters. In other words, it's part of the historical drama. It's part of a historical event. This is the final historical attack by the evil one on the grace of God manifested in Jesus Christ. Now, since the days of Irenaeus, one of the earliest of the church fathers, the church has recognized that this beast in Revelation 13 is the Antichrist. Revelation doesn't use that title, but John uses this title in his letters. The beast in this chapter is Antichrist. He almost has a wound from which he's healed, like Jesus does. He, he wears uh, crowns just like Jesus does. He's the, he's the opposite of Jesus. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth given to him by God. The, the beast is given authority by the devil throughout the entire church age, throughout the 42 months that are the code number for the life of Jesus, the, the mission of Jesus, which is being reproduced by the church on earth. We, we are following the same pattern as Jesus followed. There will be periods where our ministry is effective and the word is going out into all the earth and there will be a time, as we'll see later, when the church will suffer as Jesus suffered. John identifies that there will be a future Antichrist. The Apostle John says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. 
Of course, says John, he will have many predecessors. John says there are many antichrists who have already come. And in fact, John says the spirit of antichrist is in the world already. So throughout the age, throughout the church age, there will be many antichrists. And the spirit of antichrist, the way in which antichrist operates, will be operating throughout the whole of the church age. Antichrist, who is the figure in this chapter, will establish a global hegemony. Authority was given over every tribe and people, tongue and nation. He's given authority to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Notice that. That word to conquer has been used almost exclusively so far in Revelation about the Lamb conquering in the end or the church conquering over false teaching and uh, false teachers. But here it is the church that is conquered. Here the beast conquers. Here the saints lose. That's the way it's going to be. Now we Christian people, we live in a tension between Romans 13 and Revelation 13. Romans 13 describes a fairly stable, limited human government which keeps the peace, punishes criminals, raises taxes, and we're told to obey the powers that be. Such a state, we see from uh, Peter, enables churches and Christians to live quiet and peaceable lives. Here in Revelation 13, the state, the minister of God, has become a monster. G.B. Caird puts it like this, All political power is the gift of God, but when men deify the state, either directly by a religious cult or indirectly by demanding for it the total loyalty and obedience that are due to God and God alone, it, that is the state, ceases to be human and becomes bestial. In the case of Antichrist, you can see what his pretensions are. Like Satan, he has ten crowns on his horns, mimicking the role of Christ who alone is the King of kings and Lord of lords. His agenda is clearly expressed. The beast is given a mouth uttering haughty, blasphemous words. It opened its mouth in uttering blasphemies against God, blasphemies against God's name, blasphemies against God's dwelling. What is God's dwelling? That is those who dwell in heaven. You are God's dwelling. You have your citizenship in heaven. Your names are written in heaven. Your king dwells in heaven and reigns from heaven. You, the people of God, in the midst of of his reign, Antichrist will assault not only the name of God, but the people of God. Antichrist is clearly following the profile of Daniel's fourth beast, 
who had a mouth full of proud words, who speaks words against the Most High, and who will wear out the saints of the Most High. John, in his uh, exposition of the Antichrist, describes him as one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, because by doing so, you deny the Father and the Son. He goes on to say this, every spirit that refuses to confess that Jesus is Christ come in the flesh is the spirit of Antichrist. What about the Apostle Paul? In his Thessalonian correspondence, the Apostle Paul addresses a supercharged church that thought the second coming had already come. There'd been a secret rapture. Everybody who was going to be raptured was raptured, and they'd been left behind. They're the first church, I think, in history to have been able to write the book Left Behind. And they'd been teaching this kind of thing, and Paul addresses them. And his response is to tell them, Christ will not return until after Antichrist appears. In fact, he says, Antichrist will be destroyed by the breath of the Lord Jesus' mouth and his appearing and his coming. And that's the context in which he gives them some information about the Antichrist. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, the day of Christ's appearing, the day you think's already happened but hasn't, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. What does Antichrist set out to do? He sets out to establish himself in the Christian community as being an authoritative voice and expect Christian people to obey his decrees, his obligations, and his words. That's what Antichrist will do. He'll do what Adolf Hitler tried to do in Germany. He said about taking over the church. And do you know what his major argument was? It was uh, the, the Lutheran church, the evangelical church in Germany, had been uh, influenced by a period in Martin Luther's life where there was chaos, there was a, a rebellion among the, the peasantry and so on, the peasants' revolt. And uh, he was terrified that, that, that the, Revo- the Reformation was going to descend into the chaos and disorder that was taking place. And he took a hard line on Romans 13, basically teaching you had to obey the state in everything. And so that's what the German Protestants did. And German Protestantism was virtually eviscerated by Hitler. That's what we're told here the Antichrist will do. Satan, uh, Hitler is a, just a, one of those many Antichrists who've gone out into the world. So the saints have to deal with then the mystery of lawlessness, the spirit of Antichrist today, 
and they will have to face the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, in the future. And what we're reminded of here in Revelation 13 is that the powers that be have their demonic counterparts all the time. That's what Paul is teaching in Romans, sorry, in Ephesians chapter 6. We are not fighting against flesh and blood. We often personalize it, people we don't like and so on. But we're not to do that because we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting against principalities and against powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There is a power at work in the institutions of men, whether they're commercial, whether they're cultural, whether they're political. The institutions of men are not simply at the at the behest of the people that run them, because behind them there is this trajectory of evil that emanates the spirit of Antichrist. Now the challenge then is how we respond to Antichrist. That's not our times thus far. But let's remind ourselves that those evil powers are going to target the church. They're going to target the society of those who, as this text says, belong to heaven. Their citizenship is in heaven. The monster's attack is aimed at the the name, the divine name, the divine one, who is present when the church is present, who is to be found wherever two or three are gathered together in the name of Jesus. The dragon works through the beast as his agent. That's a very salutary thought. We've gotten used in America to thinking of the state being neutral towards the Christian faith, perhaps even supportive of the Christian faith. We've had 250 years of something that is a bit of a fluke in the history of the world in that we've enjoyed here in the United States freedom of religion, freedom of expression. And it's one of the things we hold very dearly that that belongs to us. But what this passage of Scripture is saying is you shouldn't get to attach to that because that is not going to last till Jesus comes. That's a hard thing for us to get our heads around. But it's not going to last till Jesus comes. So when we see changes uh, in the works, whether it's the increasing movement towards euthanasia, whether it's... uh, blacklisting groups of people for, for different reasons in our society, killing Down syndrome children in the womb as in, in Iceland. Uh, and if the truth has been reported correctly, unvaccinated people having to wear yellow wristbands in Germany and Austria, reminiscent of the Third Reich. The, these are just little things. These things are little, but what they are are part of a process. Any one of those things is a reminder that we are in a world that is, though we want to politicize it, it is not political. It is satanic. So how do we respond when the state 
becomes a monster? The answer is, from the book of Acts, we must obey God rather than men. From the lips of Jesus, we must give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but to God what is God's. Here's where there can be no negotiation or capitulation, period. The church must remain the church. The church must continue to do what it is called to do. What is that? Gather for worship. What is that? Share a common life with one another. In our social interaction, eating and drinking, having conversation with one another as members of the body of Christ. The church must keep asserting the claims of Jesus Christ over all of life. We have another king, one Jesus. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. We need to remind ourselves that we belong to another kingdom. And we must deny that there is any other power or personality that has any claim and authority to override the Christian conscience. Our best minds, of course, We'll have to come up with good arguments concerning abortion and stem cell research and euthanasia and the issues of our time, and they should. But the church, however, cannot successfully confront the principalities and powers of our time. If we bow to the court of public opinion... or if we submit to the court of human judgment where it rules anything that contradicts the Savior, the church will lose, as it lost under Hitler. It will lose her soul and gain nothing, ironically gain nothing in return. You see, there's there's an implicit call to faithfulness here in a world dominated by the beast. In his recent commentary, Mangina puts it like this, the utterly unsentimental witness of the apocalypse is that in the larger scheme of things, a church must be prepared to lose. Not because failure is good, but because this happens to be the nature of the story that we are involved in. The book of Revelation has been teaching this this over and over again. You may not get it. You may not like it. But it's been telling it over and over and over and over again. The church on earth is imitating the life of Jesus in his public ministry. How did it end for Jesus? Dead and buried. How is it going to end for the church? Dead and buried. But how did it really end for Jesus? It ended in resurrection from the dead. And how will it really end for the church? The trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised, and we shall be immortal, raised immortal in immortality. The same story. 
We're imitating Jesus. The defeat of the Lamb led to the great reversal of the resurrection. The defeat of the church will lead the final day to the resurrection of the dead. This is where history is going. Wouldn't it have been great if the dispensationalists were right and we were going to be kind of beamed up before the trouble happened? But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's wishful thinking. From the glory days when everything was going great and the future looked bright. Those are not our days. Because what we're seeing in our days, and this is right across the board, this is, this is right across the board, uh, throughout the world, what we're seeing in our days are movements afoot, which when they all come together, and they may not come together for another thousand years, will end up with the Antichrist. So we are to wake up and smell the coffee. Church of God, wake up. Realize that already the spirit of Antichrist is in the world, John says. Know already that there are many Antichrists that have been in the world. Hitler was one, Stalin was another, Paul Pot was another, Mao Zedong was another, Muhammad was another. We need to be aware that these things are going on. And we need to make the plain things the main things in the life of our church. And stick to them. Stop arguing about things that don't matter. And focus on the things of God. Lord, we pray that you would work this miracle in our heart as we face the mystery of iniquity in the world. Keep guiding us and leading us. Keep your presence upon us, we pray. In Jesus' strong name. Amen.